0: Heavenly Father, it's an incredible kindness that you would speak to us and then such a generosity that you have your word recorded in this book. And so might we right now come to it, not is ink on a page, not like any other book that's ever been written, but is what it is, your living and active word. Help us to be humble beneath it, to be hungry for it. Above all things, what we ask is that through the work of the Holy Spirit, that every single person in this room would leave this place more impressed with Jesus, more confident in what he's done, more full of hope and anticipation about what he promises to bring to completion when he returns. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you lift Christ high in this place and draw all of our hearts after him. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I know you all were just standing, but if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, would you stand with me? And in light of this text, uh, you might want to bend the knees. Don't, Don't lock them. We don't want you wobbling. This is God's holy, wonderful Word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And those days, Mary arose and went forth in haste into the hill country to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. One of my favorite things, and I think this is true for many people, about Christmas hymns is the amount of depth that they go into or can go into. Perhaps none goes deeper than verse 2 of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. I've sung those lines, probably triple digits at least at this time of life. Many of you have as well, at least dozens of times. You've probably heard them hundreds of times, if not thousands of times. And I wonder as we sing those words or we hear those words, if we have any, if we, if we have a, a real grasp of what we're saying. These words that are played in coffee shops, these words that are are, are sung on on public school stages by high school choirs, proclaiming some of the richest theology that you could possibly proclaim. I wonder if we understand what sort of theology we're professing and why what it's talking about, the, the virgin birth or more technically the virgin conception of Christ matters so much. I want to spend some time and we'll camp out here for a little while of why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin, but I want to recognize um, maybe one of the obstacles we have as we even begin this conversation. Let's just recognize the challenge of this doctrine. How can a virgin become pregnant? And on one hand, it's a fair question. Mary herself asked it. She said, how will this be? Now, the question is, did she ask it in disbelief or in belief? And we'll get back to this a little bit later, but I would suggest she actually asked it in belief. But what's really behind our struggle, and I don't assume that's a struggle with everyone in this room, but what's often behind the struggle with a text like this is really, it's about our worldview. It's the way in which we see the world. The challenge of a virgin conception or really any other miracle comes down to what shapes your view of this world. Is God real or not? Is God involved in this world or not? Is there something beyond what we see right in front of us or not? We are steeped in what's called a naturalistic or materialistic worldview, that it's what we can touch, what we can test, what we can verify. But that's not how the Bible, the Bible's not opposed to that way of testing testing and verifying and and assessing, but it offers us something. It says there's something beyond what we see and what we feel. And as soon as we embrace a biblical worldview, and I'm not going to argue for one here, I'm just going to talk through the text as the Bible does, but I did want to offer to you this, that once you accept a biblical worldview, the idea of a virginal conception while miraculous is, 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 as verse 37 says, nothing is impossible with God. And so I want to, and the reason I'm bringing this up is we can get so stuck on the details of the text, we miss the significance of the text. I want to move from like, how is this even possible to why does it even matter? Because the details of this text are making it very clear that this was supposed to be a virginal conception, not just a miracle birth. If you go earlier in Luke 1, you see a miracle birth that uh, Zechariah and and Elizabeth, this couple that's very old, are told that they'd been barren, that that we see in this text here. They're told they're going to have a son That's still a miracle, but it's a different type of miracle. We go through the Bible, we see those types of miracles show up. This is a a different type of one, trying to highlight something that is unique only to Mary. It's this virgin betrothed. In that context, in this culture, to be betrothed was a sort of engagement, but it was a binding engagement. It was an engagement that would last a year. You didn't live together. You still lived in your own homes. And to call off the engagement was, was the same as a divorce. And so she's she cemented this relationship. But then as we see down in verse 34, it says, how will this happen since I'm a virgin? Literally what it says, how can this happen since I do not know a man? Why does the virgin birth matter? I'm going to make a big claim and then I'm going to try to support it. Without the virgin birth, we have no Savior. That's how important this is. We have no Savior. The virgin birth secures at least two absolutely essential things for Jesus to be Savior. His full deity, that he is God, and fully human, that he becomes man veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate fleshed deity. That Christ has come as the God-man in order to save. Fully God, fully human, and yet without sin. In seminary, I was taught a helpful formula, I think it came from St. Augustine, for how to think of human nature in relation to sin and obedience. And I'm, gonna, I'm still kind of priming the pump here, and I'll try to bring all these threads together here in a second. We'll put this up on the screen because I think it'll just be helpful. Able to sin or able not to sin, that's Genesis 1 and 2. That when God created humanity, Adam and Eve, that he created them in a state where they were able to obey and also had the potential to disobey. They were able not to sin. Then Genesis 3, 6 happens and kind of everything following that humanity out of rebellion to God, they chose to sin and then we were stuck in a place of not able not to sin. When you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit changes your hearts and the language of the Bible is that you've been regenerated, you've been born again, you've been given a new heart and we are placed now in a spot of able not to sin, like you're actually able to to honor God. We also run from God. We obey him. We disobey him. But we get back to this place. And then one day, by God's grace and the finished work of Christ, we will not be able to sin. That's going to be a great day. It's not till glory, but that is going to be a great day. Now, the reason I'm bringing this in is what this is pointing out. We'll just leave it up for a second. Is this place of not able not to sin, Genesis 3, 6, this puts us into what's called original sin. Not the first sin that happened, but the sin that mars every single person that's ever been born ever since it happened. The Bible uses language like that, 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 that we are born in, not, not in a place of neutrality to God, but a place of rebellion to God. That our hearts are darkened. The, the, the Bible even uses language like we're dead. We're dead. And we're not able to revive ourselves. This is where you might get the doctrines if you've ever heard of total depravity. It doesn't mean you're utterly depraved. It doesn't mean we're born as wicked as we possibly can be, but it means of our own abilities, we are not able to please God or pursue God. There's a corruption that entered the world when Adam, the first Adam, failed the test to obey. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. David, um, a king of Israel, wrote a, a number of Psalms. Psalm 51.5 wrote this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This isn't about his mom being a sinner. It's the fact that we just have this inherited rebellion to God that's looped into us. And um, in the loop this week, we're going to have a link to an article if you want to dive into this more. I mean, this is, we're, 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 we're like cannonballed into the deep end of the theological pool right now. But it's for a really important reason. We aren't born neutral. We are not able not to sin. And that's a problem if we're going to have a perfect Savior. Let me continue Romans. Lord willing, we're going to go through Romans in the new year, and we'll spend more time in chapter 5. But for today, let me just read a few more verses. Romans 5.14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, they sinned, but just in different ways, who was a type of the one who was to come. What's happening here in this text is they're setting up this contrast between Adam and Jesus. That if you go and read further in Romans 5, what you'll see is that that Jesus became a sort of second Adam, a type of the one to come. Now, the background of this, if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, God creates Adam and Eve, and he places them in a a perfect paradise, a place where there's no decay, there's no corruption, there's there's no animosity, there's no fear, there's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no death. And he places them there, and and he he gives them instructions, and he he says, everything is yours, except for one thing. You cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you shall surely die. And it seems in the text, it seems like it takes them about seven minutes to to blow it. I mean, that's kind of what it seems, is that they go, and they see that the tree is a delight to the eyes, and so they grab the fruit, and they eat it. And they broke the world. And we would break the world. They failed. They didn't pass the test. But even in the midst of that text, if you go back to Genesis chapter three, even in the midst of what's known as these curses, these consequences that come because of our rebellion, there's loaded in this promise that one day there would be another one to come. And where the first Adam failed, he would come and he would pass the test. That he would set everything right Again, Romans 5.17 and following. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Speaking of Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. You see this contrast being set up, this this significance of of why the virgin birth matters, that Christ could not inherit the sin nature of Adam and yet he had to be born of a woman. He had to be fully human, yet without sin. There's a lyric in Hark the Herald, I don't think I've ever sung before. Adam's likeness, Lord of faith, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And that's what's happening in this text, the, the, that this idea of a virginal conception, the reason Christ had to be born of a virgin is that he didn't inherit the sin of, of an earthly father. But, but then verse 35, it says, the spirit comes and the spirit's going to hover over you. If you go back to the second verse of the Bible at the very beginning, You have God and creation is being made and it says the spirit came and hovered over the face of the water. See, what's happening in the womb of Mary in this text is a sort of beginning of creation. It's sort of a recreation, sort of the beginning of life again. See, what's happening in Mary's womb is a sort of reenactment of those opening chapters and where the first Adam failed, the second Adam failed is going to succeed. Gabriel is announcing to Mary that she's going to give birth to the long-expected, long-awaited, long-needed child. Gabriel is saying, the God who saves is now here to do what we could never do. There's a scene in the series West Wing, which I thought was a fantastic, really interesting series with some incredible acting in it. And there's this scene and it takes place in the White House and it's about the president and kind of his cabinet. And there's a chief of staff um, named Leo McGarry. And he shares this story at one point. He says, this guy was walking down the street and he falls into a hole. The walls are so steep and the hole is so deep, there's no way that he can climb Out of it, and then eventually a doctor passes by and and he shouts out from the hole. He says, Please, please, I've fallen in this hole. Can you can you help me get out? And so the doctor does what a doctor can do, and, and he writes a prescription and he throws it down the hole. And then he moves on. And then a priest comes by this place where this person has fallen in a hole and he and he shouts out, he says, Can you come down? I'm I'm stuck. I need to be saved. I can't get out. The walls are too steep. I cannot climb out. And so the priest does what a priest can do, and he prays. Writes it out, throws it in the hole, and moves on. Then a friend walks by. He's like, hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me? And the friend jumps in the hole. And this guy that fell in, the first guy that fell in, he looks at his friend. He says, are you crazy? Now we're both down here. And the friend replies, he says, yeah, but I've been down here before. And I know the way out. God didn't just throw down the instructions. He didn't just say, here's what you have to do. Here's what you have to obey. Here's how you have to perform. Here's, here's the pathway to get back to me. The story of Christ coming is Christ himself throwing us into the hole. Throwing us into this, this sin-marked world. Oh, full of beauty, but also so much brokenness saying i know the way out That's a story of the gospel it's a story that gets completed from from christmas when 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 God would come and wrap himself in flesh to pass the test, to, to obey, where we have, have failed to obey, that he was tempted. The Bible tells us that he became like us in every way and yet without sin, that he was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. When you say that, like fill in the gaps. He was tempted in every way. He was tempted to respond with anger when, when we get cut off. He was, he was tempted to respond with bitterness when his friends rebelled. He was, he was tempted to, to go after and lay hold of that which wasn't his as he saw something beautiful. He was, I mean, he was tempted in every single way. He was tempted to try to save face and to, to, to say something that was half true in order that other people might look better on. He was tempted just like we are in every single way and yet was without sin. And then he went to a cross. So he passed the test in the garden. He passed the test. And then he went to the cross and he, and he took our failing grade. He took our curse. He he took what what we deserve that we might have what he earned, which is righteousness. So that we can be saved, utterly, completely saved. And that's even loaded in the name that's given. He says, Mary, when you have this baby, you are to call him Jesus. Because his name means God is salvation or God saves. See, the whole story of our salvation is one that God does. He looks with favor on Mary. That means he, he showed grace too. It's the same thing with us. I mentioned Advent calendars, so that's verse 31, and we got about 80 verses to go. I mentioned Advent calendars last week in a sermon. Um, it's daily countdown to Jesus towards Christmas. You know, each day you open your, your, your door and you get a piece of chocolate, or you open up if you have a fancier one, maybe there's like a scroll of scripture in it or something. And it, this past week, um, Alistair Begg, I was listening to something from him, and he talked about the entirety of the Old Testament is basically one big Advent calendar, the entire thing is pointing towards Christ, every promise, every hope, every hurt to be healed, every longing that, that was, was deferred, all of it pointing towards Christ and perhaps no promise more needed or hoped for than that this Messiah would come. If you go into the Bible, there's this, the Old Testament, the first two thirds of the Bible, there's this, this Messiah hope, this, this hope for a savior king to come who would finally set everything right once and for all. Mary would have been waiting for this. Devout Jews were waiting for this. And when when Gabriel began to speak, it would have set off all of these these alarm bells in in Mary's head and heart that would have said the Messiah is now here. Messiah or Christ, anointed one, meaning Savior, King. Everyone was waiting for it. And this combination of Son of the Most High, as we have in in verse 31, and then beyond the throne of David, and his kingdom will endure forever. These would, these would go together and say, that's the Messiah. I'll just read you one text. There's a lot of them that we could go to. 2 Samuel 7:12 uh, through 13 and 16. When your days are fulfilled, this is a promise that God gave to David. And here's what he's saying. When you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That long-awaited promise is now coming into reality in the statement of Gabriel towards Mary. Jesus, the greatest savior, is also the greatest king. Most high, it's code for almighty power. Saying one with almighty power is going to come and reign Is a savior king forever. I didn't think much about state governors before 2020. Um, Maybe you did. I didn't think much about them. Specifically, I had never thought about how much power they have. This was illustrated for me um, in uh, February of 2021. I went on a trip to Miami. I had to go to a, a meeting in Miami. And then when, when I left Washington, it was a time where we had some of the, the biggest restrictions in the nation of any state. And so I left Bellingham, and I landed in Miami, where they declared that COVID was done summer of 2020. And it was, it was a wild flip. And, and I'm not showing my cards on whether good or bad. Or, I'm, that's not the debate I'm having. But what it did is it illustrated for me how much power a ruler can have. Some of you are like, please say what you think. I'm not... <laughs> This ain't my first time around the block. Um, <laughs> I can't think, though, of two more different approaches to the same issue. And I, I just think, like, how different we probably would think, how different we would feel, how different we, believe, how different we would have at least experienced. I talked to a buddy who's in Atlanta. He said, they didn't shut down for a week. And i like, it just didn't even happen there. And so you just go, like, that is wild to me how different... A different ruler, a different person in power makes life and makes life for those that are underneath that person that's in power. This text says that one day Jesus will be in charge fully. He will reign supreme. All of his goodness and rightness and mercy and justice, all of it, he will reign supreme. It's so easy to to see earthly leaders, to see ourselves, see our, like wherever we reign, wherever we have influence, and become disheartened, become it cynical. And this text is saying, no, there is a king to come that will be able to address all of the problems, all of the corruption, all of the foolishness. One day Jesus will reign forever. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Saying everything that's broken will be fixed. Everything corrupted will be judged, dealt with, and what will be in its place is righteousness. Everything our hearts long for. All the hopes and fears, everything, are found in the Savior King that was promised to come to Mary. The song Joy to the World captures this Savior King pairing so well. Verse 1, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Verse 2, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Verse 4, he rules the world with truth and grace. But my favorite verse of Joy to the World is the one that almost never gets sung, and we always sing it here, it's verse 3. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Everything Adam broke. Everything we break. Every disease, every affliction, every pain, every moment of loneliness and sorrow and hunger. The most global stages of war to the most personal places of internal battles. He will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. What Adam couldn't do, Jesus has come to do. The Savior King is here. It's a longer quote from John Calvin. What we see is is Jesus is everything we need because Jesus is everything. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. If we see strength that lies in his dominion, if we seek purity in his conception, if gentleness, it appears at his birth, if we seek redemption in his sacrifice, it lies in his passion, if acquitted in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if we seek newness of life in his resurrection, if we seek immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom In his entrance into heaven. If we seek protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings, it's in his kingdom. If untroubled expectation of judgment and the power given to him alone to judge. In short, since rich store and every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. The comprehensiveness of the announcement that was given to Mary is stunning. It goes as far as the curse goes. Jesus is everything we need because Jesus is everything. And in light of that, how do we respond? That's why I included these other verses that we'll we'll go more quickly through. But in light of who Christ is, how do we respond? There's probably no better place to start than where Mary did, which is she believed. She believed. We hear it in her initial question, how will this be? The way she phrases it, I don't, it's not a question of if this can happen or if this will happen. She's, just, she's asking how can this happen? She's coming with, with curious belief. We see it clearly in verse 45 when Elizabeth looks at her and says, blessed are you who believed. The way we become partakers of all that Jesus is and came to do is it's not through our doing. It's not fundamentally through how we perform. It's, it's through belief. It's through faith. It's through trust. It's saying, I believe, Christ, you are the long-awaited Messiah. I believe you are the one that's come to save to do what I can't do. I believe you are the one that we need to come and reign, that there is no other to look for. Mary's example of belief or faith invites us to walk that same path. Um, she takes God at his word. I want to have that kind of faith let it be done to me. Just, all right, whatever that looks like, I trust you. I'm also really grateful though, if you go a few verses earlier in this chapter, you come across someone named Zechariah, who was a priest of God, who was upright, who walked with God, but he also disbelieved. He was faithful and he was unfaithful. And what's interesting about Zachariah, he was told he'd have a baby boy too, and he kind of scoffed at God about it, and, and he still got a baby boy. And I love the fact that his disbelief did not keep God from delivering on his promises, that God still does it. I shared, um, it was a little over a month or so ago, I shared about an incident I had on an airplane on the way to Omaha. I won't give you all the details of it, but death felt imminent. And so... um, I hadn't worried about flying in a really long time. Been on a lot of airplanes. It just, it just, I just don't think about it anymore. You just get on. We're going to land. We're going to get off. That's, that's how it's going to work. But this trip to Omaha kind of unnerved me. Really, it really unnerved me. And about a week and a half later, I was going to Boise for something, and, and I was really nervous. I got on the plane. And I'm I'm tight. I'm actually tightening the belt. I'm really tight, and I'm kind of like holding. The, and I'm just like every every time the engine made a weird, what I thought was a weird sound. Every time there was a little bit of a shake. Every time like there was a th- every time there was anything, ah, you know, I just I just kind of like, I would get nervous on this on this trip. It's just more unnerving than than usual. But here's the reality: either the plane makes it or it doesn't. My degree of belief on whether the plane is safe or not doesn't change whether the plane gets there or not. I started thinking about it. On that plane to Boise, you had, you know, 100 plus people, all with varying degrees of belief and confidence in the safety of the plane to get us there or not. And some totally confident, some absolutely freaking out, and a lot of people kind of in between. Here's the reality. Everybody that got on the plane still landed in Boise. Just believe one of the great testimonies to the sufficiency of Christ as a savior is we are not saved by the degree of our belief. We're not saved by the, by the, the depth. we're not even saved by like the, the absolute like ability to understand all the theology. like, why does he have to be born of a virgin?" You just say, "I just believe. I, I just got on the plane. I got on the plane. And Christ promises that he will get you, not, not to Boise. As good as Boise is, I actually really enjoyed Boise. It was great. he gets you to the kingdom. He will get you to the kingdom. He will surely do it. Jesus is everything we need because Jesus is everything. So we believe. And then we do what John did in this womb, this little baby. Little six-month-old inside this woman, you know, three inches long. We do what Elizabeth did. The, the language is she shouts. I mean, she is just so excited. We do what Mary did as she magnifies. We believe and we rejoice. One of the, my favorite moments when Katie was pregnant, my wife was pregnant with our, our two oldest, is when I could start to feel the babies moving. Now, obviously, my wife felt them way before I did. She'd feel those flutters and those moves. But as they got bigger and they're able to actually press and, and, and move, it's like to put your hand and to feel an appendage or an arm or, or something, like move across. And it's, I mean, At times, it was kind of like Alien because, you know, you get that, you know, it just kind of like goes across, which I always thought was kind of cool too. But, but I mean, it, like, but they never did what, what John did in this text. Like, he leaped. He, he leaped. It's the language that's used when, you, when a calf gets let out of a pen and it's free to rain like jumping and soaring because the joy of the Messiah coming is so good and so real and so powerful and so joy-infusing that they, you can't not leap. God's people have been waiting so long. We, we could say we've been waiting all the way back to Genesis 3 for the Messiah to come, and now he's here. And so they, they, they leap, they leap. Katie and I lived in Boston for a few years when I was going to seminary and really enjoyed Boston, really enjoyed it. And one of the things that I found, is like Seattle is a great sports town. It's a great sports town. Boston takes it to a whole new level. But like if you spend any time in Boston, they, they are they are fanatics about their sports, all of New England, and particularly the, the Red Sox. They love the Boston Red Sox. And, and I... I Realized how passionate they were in two ways. It, that, that whenever you'd show up to a game at Fenway, what would happen? It didn't matter who the Red Sox were playing, but they would start a chant every single time you were at a game. And they would say the Yankees, and then they would put a phrase in there. I can't say the word, but they would just start this chant. The whole stadium would just start dogging on the Yankees. They're playing the Minnesota Twins. Why are they yelling at the Yankees? Like, it, it, it just didn't matter. You'd be walking down a street in Boston, and someone would just yell out, Yankees, you know, and they would just say it. And everyone, someone else would, yeah! And they would just yell. So they hated The Yankees. And it goes back to a particular reason, what's known as the curse of the Bambino. This is rooted in Babe Ruth, arguably one of the best baseball players ever. He was originally on the Boston Red Sox. He wanted a little more money, and so the Red Sox decided to trade him on December 26, 1919. Before trading Babe Ruth to the Yankees, they had won five of the first 15 World Series. They were phenomenal. They traded him away, and it was nine decades until they won another one. Babe Ruth, when he went to the Yankees, I believe he won the World Series four times for them. Each time, the the Red Sox, as they played game after game after game for 84 seasons, they, 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 they got to the World Series actually four times in those 84 seasons. They lost every single time in the last game of the last series, and sometimes in some wild, wild ways. And so what this got known as, the curse of the Bambino. You were being cursed by the ghost of Babe Ruth. <laughs> the, the fans are so serious about this, they would go to extreme measures to try to lift this curse. One of them is they actually performed a mock exorcism at Fenway, at their stadium. <laughs> Finally, in 2004, the curse was lifted. After almost nine decades, they won. And being in Boston and getting to know a of Bostonians and, and just people that were so passionate, that kind of getting on you a little bit, like you remember where you were when they won that game. I went back and I watched some, some news clips. I watched the final pitch when, when, they, when they won. And you, the, the amount of joy you see amongst these grown men they are leaping and jumping and soaring and people are running onto the, the field. They're flooding the mound. There's people coming out of the stadiums. I mean, there is screaming and shouting and cheering and rejoicing. And then in some of these news clips, they clip to like other Boston bars and you see a room just loaded with people and you see some of, like the, like some of the Boston people are, are wild. Some of, the, some of the grittiest, hardest, like just most, most gritty people, and some, some of the people just like, and they're just like hugging and crying and rejoicing and lifting and carrying each other like babies through the, you know, and beer is spilling. I mean, it's just this like insane scene. Do you know what we have in Christ? It's so much better. It's so much more sure. It's so much more permanent. And that is a great thing. And I'm not, daug- oh, rejoice. You know, I would suggest to you, let those moments, wherever it is that you rejoice, whether it's a kid's game, a choir concert, professional sporting event, you got a new car, whatever it is, whatever created that leap of joy, let it trace you up to this. Let it stir your affections with Christ has come and conquered death. Oh my goodness. Christ has come and done all the obeying that any of you need to be right with a holy God. Once and for all, it will never be revoked. Christ is coming to bring an end to the curse as far as it's found. He is bringing all of that joy. And so as we come with belief, at least let this season, at least let some of it, create some rejoicing. And one more, and I will not go through the rest of these verses, what's known as the Magnificat, this magnify that Mary sings. We'll likely do this uh, Christmas Eve morning. But we want to believe, believing, rejoicing and magnifying. Kent Hughes defines this this way. He says, to magnify means to enlarge. And what Mary wanted to enlarge was her vision of God. Her goal was to show his greatness. And that's what you have in her song. Oh, let my spirit and my soul magnify the Lord. Everything in me. Look what he's done. And he'll do it for anybody that trembles before him. Look what he's done. Look at what he's done in the past. And she recounts some history and she says, Look what he's done for me in the present and look forward to what he's going to do in Christ. Make him really loud. Show him off. We have the greatest king, the greatest savior, bringing the greatest kingdom that will have no end and all by his grace. Believing and rejoicing and magnifying the name above all names. Jesus, the God who saves. He's everything we need, because he's everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant us uh, the grace to believe. Grant us the grace to rejoice. Grant us the grace to magnify. Oh, may we never get tired of singing the praises of Christ. If we believe, help us where we unbel- in our disbelief, God. If we don't believe it all, would you give us even just a seat of it? Help us get on the plane. Help us to rejoice in the promises that he has put the down payment on and guarantees to bring. And let us spend this preparation, this time up to Christmas, doing what Mary did with our spirit and our soul, magnifying, putting the spotlight on Christ. That our hearts might be drawn closer to him and those around us might be able to see it. That maybe their hearts would be drawn to him too.